think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 99 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 100th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. That's a, that's a very big number. Yeah, triple digits, baby. Ooh. Uh, only took us only took us like four years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's what I was thinking. That a, a large number of podcasts that I've even political commentary podcasts, such as Peter Mansbridge podcasts, that have even popped up in like the last year, seem to yes. have uh, easily crossed the one hundred threshold. Yes. And yet here we are, four years later. I mean, when you do the math, when you do the math on it, it's about an episode every other week on average. In that it's it's, it's, it's about twenty five every year, over about four years. So there you go. Yeah, fair. Yeah, the intern is now shredding some confetti to celebrate. It sounds like so. Uh. <laughs> it was more earlier on, and now I think we're averaging every three weeks, largely because there is uh, well, we have not lives a whole now. lot to talk about in Ottawa. <laughs> well, it's also like and, and, we, it's mostly and that the having of lives. It's mostly that. Yeah, like we could and we couldn't record during the election and all this other stuff and. Yeah, it's just like when we were students and lived next door to each other, it was very easy to just like, hey, you want to record? Yeah, okay. Now, of course, as our responsibilities mount, uh, et cetera, you know, it's, it's just now not it's, as easy now as it's it was. Even easier. I, I don't even have to leave the house. There is that. The, the uh, remote recording does make things a little easier. Like this was logistically. Anyway, like, we won't bore everyone with uh, the behind the music for the, the whole episode. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Thanks. The intern has been stopped from uh, from his pilfering, so this is good. Uh, yeah, and congratulations to to Hugo, our loyal intern of four years, uh, for for just doing exemplary work, uh, making a lot of noise in the background of Boys and Short Pants <laughs> episodes. He's made it all four years. Yeah, no, no untimely demise for the intern. No, despite despite a near brush uh, this summer. Luckily for him, four, four year internship though that's pretty brutal. Well, he's not that good. He's just not not cut out for the job. He has market. not earned his stripes now. <laughs> uh, okay, so over the last several weeks, the the story has really just been uh, an intensification of parliamentary trench warfare uh, that has sort of uh, the, the lines and trench trench networks have frozen into place around the um, around the we issue, um, and and. and- that's what makes it challenging, uh, you know, from from a podcasting perspective to discuss because there is there is much sound and fury, but there's not much actually moving, I suppose. And it, I think it, you know, de- dear intel- intelligent listeners are expecting something a little more than a play by play of not much actually in the end happening. So sure, and there's also multiple fronts. Um, I'm sure you can listen to t- other taking, podcasts for that. T- uh, you know. Taking the form of different committees, um, principally the finance committee, now the health committee, have been sort of at the, at the front. And ethics as well. And ethics. Um, and they've all been subject to various filibusters, which you know stretch on for hours and hours and hours. Yes. Um, so unless following one of these committees is your full-time uh, job, it's hard to really recount what exactly went on. Yes. With the exception of sort of just high-level reading the minutes and finding out what... What came of, or what came out of this committee? Well, and as a rule, in many not cases, much what, is happening. What did not come out of this committee? Yeah, like as a rule, what's happening is they're being filibustered, right? So I guess let's zoom out a little bit. Since um, Parliament has returned from its prorogation, uh, we were assured by the Prime Minister upon proroguing Parliament 
that Parliament would be free to continue its inquiries in any directions it wished, uh, you know, according to its its prerogative to uh, act as the Grand Inquest of the Nation, as uh, Speaker Milliken called it uh, in his 2010 ruling on the Afghan detainees matter. Um, <laughs> Which you have in your mind just for no reason at all. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, just uh, coincidence, yeah, you know, just no, no reason. Um, at any rate... Uh, he decided or it seems like perhaps i don't know maybe he had nothing to do with it maybe it's just his his uh caucus just you know like they, they were like you know what boss we just believe in what you're doing so strongly that you know hey we'll take care of this you know we don't we don't want these committees are independent and they are masters of their own destiny exactly no one, so no, no one's one telling them accuse, what to do no one would accuse mps of taking instruction or advice from anyone but, yeah but their good conscience i mean uh, you know i i've often observed that mps have a lot of trouble taking direction myself so i <laughs> <laughs> i you know maybe, maybe who knows no obviously uh the the pmo is not super keen on this um so that that brings us to a a place where the conservatives are putting forward and uh, uh it, well the opposition in general I should really say because there have been uh, motions proposed by both the NDP and the conservatives uh, in various committees to investigate the we matter in various ways and other matters as well frankly uh more and more uh we're really seeing it more and more I would say um and the liberals have just basically found i would say reasons but pretenses i guess is really probably more accurate to um oppose them though i would say for the conservatives uh that they really got an early advantage by pushing very 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 far with their motions and it it is really worth reiterating or i guess iterating for the first time because there actually hasn't really been much media coverage of this somewhat to my surprise but the conservative motions at various committees that turned into the motion in the House that was the subject of much discussion and speculation this week about whether there would be an election or not after the uh, government decided to turn it into a confidence matter, uh, as is their prerogative, was that the uh, people have talked about, like, oh, you know, it would ask for a bunch of private citizens' records, etc., uh, which is true, and, you know, like, the, the stuff about Margaret Trudeau and, and uh, Sasha Trudeau and, you know, requisitioning their, their records and, you know, how much they've been paid by Speaker's Bureau or whatever it's called um, over the last, you know, like, 10 years, basically. I, I think reasonable people can disagree on whether that is an, an overreach or not of, of what is not... Not a legal matter, but one of just appropriateness of like, is that really the direction you want to go? Uh, but what is actually unprecedented as far as I can tell is the request uh, by a parliamentary committee for documents created or originating in ministers' offices. Um, famously, there was the Afghan detainees matter, as I alluded to earlier, where uh, parliament during the Harper minority... Uh, asked for a, a wide variety of documents related to, um, you know, its investigation of whether um, Canada was complicit in the torture of Afghan detainees. As far as I can tell, uh, that did not include documents from ministerial offices. It may have because the wording is a bit ambiguous, but otherwise, as far as I can tell, what was asked for was only documents or, like originating in the public service, which is a pretty critical distinction, right? Um, we have a responsible we have responsible government so the idea is that 
the executive answers to the legislature and the executive in our system is, is obviously it's ministers, but it's really the public service, uh, you know, that is accountable to parliament. Uh, ministerial offices have typically not been seen in the same way. I, I as far so, as I can tell, let, there's no... Let me, let me pause you there. Sure. Right? Um, because if anyone is listening from one of our provincial capitals, they might be of a very different um, opinion. Yeah, sure. In uh, in BC, for instance, a lot of this stuff is uh, like you can you can make access information requests for legislative offices, for instance, which is very different than in Ottawa. Um, but yes. yeah, I think there's a few ministers' offices that are subject to access to information um, provincially. Um, or, or the provincial equivalent statutes. Um, but it is really important to note that typically ministers' offices documents in Ottawa are only extracted from the ministers' office via legal proceedings. Yeah. Um, ATIP, standing for the Access to Information Privacy Act, has no grounds um, to request documents from those ministers' offices. So broadly, the documents are considered sacrosanct. And the, yeah. as a result, there is candid advice um, that is you know, used in emails um, that the government is very unlikely to want to see. Public. No, because people are, like, in the public service, you write stuff every day knowing that the public can read it. Uh, and even then... Yeah, yes. And, and even yes. then, often what comes forward or what comes out of access information are, you know, little jokes that get covered, yeah, which is, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think infamously of the uh, CSIS cafeteria emails and the Amnesty Inter International should be called because there's no more bagels, right? Yes. And, uh, and critically, advice is also not something you can get through the access information app. But all that to say... That it in our system is pretty much unprecedented at the federal level for ministers' office documents to be sought in this direct way. Um, I am surprised and, and both that the, of the motions. Yes, and I'm surprised the, that the government has not made more of this. I suppose that they've calculated that it's not a winning argument for them. Uh, but it is genuinely, as far as I can tell, through a reasonable amount of historical research, and I am. Not 100% sure, and I'm. if I am wrong, I'm sure someone will correct me. Uh, but yes, as far as I can tell, it's unprecedented. And I, I, like I said, I'm surprised that the government has not made more of that because it is genuinely um, a novelty. So from what I've seen, so just to take one more step back, uh, there's two motions, right? There's the motion that was the confidence motion. Let's step back um, even further than that. There have been a succession of motions to request uh, studies and documents uh, well, really, studies with documents to inform them at a spate of committees. Then last week, the conservatives put forward an opposition day motion uh, that contained many of the same kind of requests for documents and a, a mandate or remit, I, yeah. really, so, but assigning so it to a new special committee uh, that but, would be... But basi basically what it was, right, was that the committees are getting filibustered, so conservatives said... Okay, if you're going to filibuster the committees, we'll use our opposition day motion to discuss this in front of Parliament. Yes. And it comes to a vote shortly thereafter. Um, taking this tack is a swerve around committees, which are more easily filibustered than you know the House of Commons, which isn't. Yes. And also committees, um, like even had the opposition gotten their way, committees have duties according to the standing orders 
where like legisla- legislation for instance takes precedence uh government legislation government le- well yes but got review of government legislation takes precedence over studies uh so yes. in that sense for instance um well i suppose ethics wouldn't really have anything coming really soon but like finance may very well have had like a budget bill coming in a month or two uh, the, well, we'll not only that, but there's also the regularly scheduled programming, right? Yes. The the committee, I suppose, could have made the decision to prioritize, uh, you know, a wee investigation or something along those lines, in lieu of pre-budgetary uh, study. Yeah. Um, but it is the pattern of the finance committee to do pre-budgetary um, analysis right around this time, which means hearing from. You know, as many witnesses as humanly possible. Often, it's quite actually a grueling feat of the committee, <laughs> where for for weeks on end they do nothing but hear from various um, groups of stakeholders, and eventually write a report that goes to the um, finance minister, um, and is promptly, often disregarded, put in a drawer. Um, yes, uh, but nonetheless, every year, without fail, or generally without fail, um, this cycle repeats itself. And that's the stage that the Finance Committee is presently at. And that's one of the motions that's backlogged in the Finance Committee's sort of filibuster process is the motion to begin um, the pre-budgetary process or the pre-budgetary uh, yeah. uh, report. <laughs> it's actually always pretty With funny. Hearing from witnesses. It's often pretty funny to watch uh, the committees actually do this because the procedural knowledge of MPs is usually not very good. So they have to like rely very heavily on the clerk to kind of tell them, like, no, okay, this happens now. Um, and the confusion over rules and stuff is, is often a, a good laugh. So honestly, I, I, I recommend every Canadian take a look at one contentious committee meeting at least, you know, once or twice in the course of their lives, because it often is a great source of laughs or, or several times a week or several times a week as, as the case may be for, for many people. Um, so where were we? The conservatives um, took it upon themselves to take their motions, flip them into opposition day motions, more or less. Um, the finance committee motion, strictly speaking, wasn't creating a uh, anti-corruption committee. No, um, no, it was I basically yeah. So basically, what they into yes. So basically, what they did was because they were like committees aren't working, we're just gonna pa- or propose a motion as our opposition day motion to create a special committee, uh, which parliament has the power to do. In fact, the first opposition day motion passed this parliament was Aaron O'Toole's motion to create a Canada-China uh, relations committee. To to recreate yeah, a special committee on Canada-China relations. Had one already existed? Yes, there was one last session. Last parliament? Yes. Oh, oh no, no, sorry. AKA I mean, I mean back from... last December after the election. Oh, sorry. Yes. Well... Okay, then we're confused. That one has been recreated. Yes, 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 yes. Um, yes, at yes. The start of After the prorogation, yes. So I, I was not talking about that. I meant just in general. Uh, but yeah, no, so that's one of Parliament's powers. It can create uh, special committees kind of at its discretion, uh, in addition to the standing committees that already exist. Um, so this would have just been another instance of using that power to create a, a special committee on anti-corruption, an allegation of misuse of funds. Um, um, so, so the government looked at that and yes. said... Uh, we don't like what is in this motion mm-hmm. um, for various reasons. And so we are going to deem that a matter of confidence. Yes, which is, and, and it's that, worth saying that the government can do that on anything. Yeah, this is one thing. So let, let's talk about confidence for a moment. Um, opposition can make things confidence motions, um, you know, with, within 
a, a prescribed context. Um, the government can make things, confidence motions. By default, spending bills or ways and means motions are considered matters of confidence. Yes. They involve the public purse. And it's not like that's um, optional either. It's like if the government cannot pass a budget, then it's 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 done. Tough, tough cookies. Yeah. Because now the government um, can't spend money legally. Yes. Um, but the government in this case, it's reasonably, I think it's incredibly unprecedented actually, at least in Canadian history, for the government to consider an opposition motion as a confidence motion um, where the opposition doesn't want it to be considered a confidence motion. That particular um, nexus of circumstances, I, I can't see a precedent for it. It's very possible, and someone may be pulling their hair out right now about something that happened during the Harper minorities, uh, which were very, very contentious minorities, it's worth saying. Uh, so let's, but at let's least talk in... about... Let's talk about those minorities for a second. Sure. Because I, I don't I don't think this was ever the case in the uh, Harper minorities, but what happened often in the Harper minority was not entirely dissimilar. It was the government of the day using confidence as a way of getting the support of opposition or at least the, the, abstention, the abstention in many cases, yes. Opposition um, to get their agenda through. Yeah. Um, because the opposition was not positioned to support the government leg or to vote down the government legislation or the government motions, as the case as the case might have been, um, because they weren't in a position to run an election, and the government was in a much better position. Yeah. So it was Harper saying, you know, just just watch me if I can make that reference. <laughs> um, time and time again with various pieces of legislation, other which otherwise would have been amended or torn to shreds by the opposition voting yes. together. And I, like like I said, it is very much the government's prerogative to consider anything it wants a confidence motion uh, because, you know, the idea is that if you, you don't like it, you go to an election. There's something of a difficulty about uh, the government's ability to deem anything it wants a confidence matter and uh, parties' willingness to go to elections. Um it's all well and good for Harper to have been like, well, you know, I'm in a commanding position. Uh, you know, if they want to go to an election, so be it. Uh, and opposition parties to be a little gun shy about that. Um, during the Paul Martin minority, actually, they were very desperate to not go to an election. Um, but I think there's something to be said about the health of parliamentary democracy when you have parties not wanting to go to an election, not over matters of, of principle or you know, even of political interest, but about like, can we actually just afford to do this right now? I think that that's, it's not the best situation. Um, it's certainly not, I don't think great for Canadians that there's a bit of uh, people looking at the price tag on these things and, and weighing them very, very carefully by that metric. Um, I think people would ideally want other metrics to be at the forefront, but such is the system we have. Yeah, I mean, I mean, dollars are a very real consideration for a political party's ability to contest an election. Yes, right? and the elimination of the per-vote um, subsidy had a lot to do with that, uh, yeah, which is something the Harper government did. It dramatically changed, and I mean, the Harper government also almost went down to a coalition government in uh, response to removing the per-vote subsidy. Indeed. Um, but it dramatically reoriented, in particular, the Liberal and the Conservative parties in terms of fundraising. Yes, um, and that has a direct nexus to ideology and comms and everything that comes out of it, right? Yes. I've often said so, that the Conservative Party is run by its emails. Um, and uh, 
I, I don't think that's that's wrong. I think that like the incentive structure to maximal election readiness means that you have to constantly be getting up to date data and uh, donations. Um, makes it so that there is a certain you, you basically find whatever is the uh, the quickest route to get to your supporters lizard brains, and you just press on that button all the time. And uh, that might not be the best thing for democracy, frankly, but there you go. Um, now, where were we in the broader discussion? Uh, to be honest, I don't really remember, but it was probably good. So let's, let's talk <laughs> about what happened um, with the vote on the motion. Yes. Um, so the, the first motion for the conservatives, um, the government declares it's going to be a confidence motion. The conservatives quickly come out and say, "We'd rather, you know, we'd rather not." Despite them saying, "We will amend the text to say this is not a confidence motion." That was hilarious, uh, actually. Or this can't be used as <laughs> pretext for an election. Um, they said, nonetheless, we will stand by and vote in favor of our motion. It's really just um, like putting, like, by the way, you can't sue me, just at the bottom of a contract <laughs> yes. or something. It's like, yeah, okay, well, I'll take that under advisement, but uh, you know, a, a clever little defense. Um, because the motion um, did not succeed, it doesn't matter. Um, but had it gone to an election, I am sure they would have pointed to that. It's like, see, the, they, um, they said the they wouldn't. In the opening days of the election. Or we said they wouldn't, I guess. Yeah. We said that this shouldn't count. You know, it would have been a very, very silly election. So I'm, I'm very happy we're not having it. Well, for now. Um, and, and so that's, that's the other moral of the entire story. Yes. Um, is that the government's willingness to do this, I think, is actually the highlight here. Yes. It seems like the government wants an election, um, or at the very least is an ambivalent um, towards an election. Yeah. They are no doubt standing back looking at now the example from British Columbia, the example from New Brunswick, likely the example from Saskatchewan. And saying, you know, pandemic elections aren't so bad. Yeah. Um, not in terms of public health consequences. <laughs> for for in incumbents. General. Incumbents do <laughs> yes. uh, pretty good. <laughs> and have done good. And, you know, it's easy to see their um, reasoning that, you know, maybe the Canadian people, you know, whatever the polling is saying, let's, let's put that aside. But the, the Canadian people... Um, as evidenced by these provincial election, uh, by these provincial elections, are not likely to change horse midstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the Canadian people want the same people in place, likely want the same ministers who've been dealing with this the entire time, et cetera, et cetera, and that's probably part of what underpins the liberal logic. Yeah, along with polling, uh, along with the fact that broadly the Canadian public, I think, um, despite my yelling into this microphone and at my television. <laughs> um, seems to think that the government is doing a reasonably good job at managing uh, the pandemic. And to a certain extent, the government has nowhere to go but down from here, uh, unless the pandemic gets dramatically better over the next few months, which seems I, I think that is very unlikely, yes. Um, winter is going to be a slog. Uh, and likewise with uh, the economic supports, right? There are various economic supports that will expire in the next year. Um, substantial ones that may result in, sorry, fire truck going by, um, in the layoffs of, you know, thousands upon thousands of workers. That seems um, bad if you're an incumbent government, to be honest. You know, you kind of don't want that. Well, I mean, you look at the example, actually, of the one incumbent who is doing, by all accounts, quite poorly. Fire trucks. Sorry? Ignore the (laughs) fire trucks. Yes. But yeah, the one incumbent who's doing, by comparison to 
uh, many of ours quite poorly is, of course, the U.S. president. Um, and I think that there are certain risks about should things worsen quickly, which, of course, can happen. Um, but, yes, yeah, so far, incumbent governments have uh, have done pretty well out of these things. Yes. for Yeah, for the most part, even, even globally. Yeah, um, New Zealand, I guess, is the other kind of standout where, uh, yeah, they got a, so, a majority, which is actually very hard to get in their system. So Yeah, so the government's now in the position of saying... I, when do I want an election fundamentally? Yeah, and we hadn't um, spoken... Do I like, want it today? Oh, go ahead. Let's finish oh, no, that thought. All. Okay, do well, I, I was today? just going to say, we uh, we were very bearish on uh, the prospect of a fall election, I think for, for very good reasons. And our analysis boiled down to, with the strength of the liberal minority, the only thing they really don't have strong control of right now is committees. And in... Um, by the time the pandemic sort of rolled around, uh, committees had basically barely been constituted. They had elected chairs, and most of them were still deciding what they would do as their first study, um, or you know they were sort of prioritizing down the line. No one had really started doing any work, um, so it was not clear how much opposition control of committees would matter. I think since the we thing, uh, opposition committee control has turned out to matter a great deal. Uh, and the government is not a big fan of that. So I think that we had, I think, a correct diagnosis that the only thing that really matters is committee control uh, with perhaps a conclusion, which was that the liberals don't want an election. Um, that turned out to perhaps in hindsight be not correct, though I think the circumstances well, changed substantially, though, uh, which, it, which right? does matter, it's obviously, no a lot. Um, it's no longer the case. It was the yes. case then. Yeah, that's the thing. I would stand um, by what we said when we said it. But uh, yeah, obviously the government has now thought twice about how fun it is to have opposition control committees. Yes. And what's coming down the pike, right? Um, because the government... The government... I mean, I, I've said this since day one, basically, of, of this uh, since the 2019 election that the election would come when the government wanted it to come. Yeah. Well, they and do have so that. The they, yeah. They, they have the luxury of often having. Yeah. In, unless all of the opposition line up and we know that more likely than not, there's going to be um, one member of the pack that can be picked. Yeah. Off there will be some tasty treats that can be offered to someone pretty much on yes. anything. So. Um, and we've seen the conservatives and the block largely. Um, voting in unison a lot of these things the the block has actually been in quite a hawkish position in relation to the government that i would not have predicted because they were very very um, earlier close early on in the pan or even before the pandemic actually they voted with the government quite a bit um which was a bit of a surprise to me but yeah uh they've certainly become quite a bit more uh i don't even know the word yeah hawkish i guess is fine um, I think it's for them. They don't see a big tail risk to an election. Uh, they, they feel likely pretty comfortable. Um, so I suspect that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. I, 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 fundamentally, the, the financing thing is not an issue for the block. I have no idea how much money they have, but they don't need to travel far. No, yeah, their elections um, are a lot, lot, lot cheaper to run. Running a regional election is yeah. not remotely as difficult as running a national election. Um, and running a regional election during a pandemic. Where you don't really have to do the uh, plane and all that stuff. Well, they don't have to do the plane anyway, but they might not even have to do the bus. Yeah, you you could do a 
uh, one of those lime scooters or something <laughs> would probably suffice for all the door-to-door campaigning that they probably do. Um, so we get to the motion. The motion is voted down um, with the NDP joining the liberals um, on on one side and the conservatives and the bloc on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, cameras turn to Jagmeet Singh. His position um, is sort of the, uh, this was the responsible thing to do. Yeah. We're not going to give the government the election that it craves and covets. Um, yeah, which I think is which, reasonable because there are other avenues to get what the opposition wants here. Um and as I've said, there were elements of the opposition motion that I think presented novelties that I, I do think it makes minority governments very difficult somewhere down the line. If we have um, uh, opposition parties basically getting uh, ministerial documents, I think that it then kind of becomes hard for the government to think that it can do its work. I mean, it'll it'll rapidly change how ministers' offices work and what they communicate via email, right? Yeah, so it'll basically mean they're, um, they, they're going to be reduced to doing, like, smoke signals at, at some way down the road here. Well, <laughs> no, I think it's it's the picking up the phone and calling yes. is, is the well-understood way yes. to circumvent um, leaving a paper trail in yes. government. And, and it's even a, you know, a tactic employed by civil servants of all stripes, sure. of all uh, levels. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of not putting things in, uh, in, on paper yeah. um, that they don't want atipped when they're expressing views that they perhaps realize yeah, should not be expressed. As, as someone who works in, in writing <laughs> and like, you know, functions by taking notes, Seems like a real pain in the ass, but, you know, if, if it's for uh, people who just need to listen to something, I guess uh, not bad. That's, you know, that's how it goes sometimes. Um, so let's, that one, so confidence vote one is uh, avoided. And then the conservatives, you know, serendipitously have another opposition day um, in the same week, really, um, which I don't think happens all that often. Uh, and so they used that to put forward a motion by Michelle Rempel-Garner that had been uh, largely being filibustered at the health committee. So let, let's talk about the substance of the motion in a minute, but let me, let me just talk about what was going on at the health committee. Um, she had introduced the motion and the liberal, one of the liberal MPs on the committee, or the liberal MPs, we can sort of put them together, um, had offered an amendment to it um, which was to remove all of the specificity out of the motion to say, you know, we agree with the direction of this study um, and we're going to lengthen the timelines a little bit and then we can take it from there. And so that moves it down to be instead of a single vote, you know, whether to call a given witness or to request given papers all becomes parsed out as a later part of the conversation mm-hmm. where Rempel Garner's motion was fairly comprehensive of exactly which papers um, she wanted off the bat. Yeah. And it is a pretty wide swath. Um, Let me just read one of the seven or eight different uh, parts of the motion. Um, All communicate a record, an order of the committee do issue for a record of all communications between the government and the WHO in respect of options, plans, or preparations for any future operations or absence thereof of the global public health 
uh, integration network, Giffen, I think it's uh, abbreviated to, uh, since January 1st, 2018, provided that these documents organized by the department shall be provided to the clerk of the committee within 30 days of the adoption of this motion. Um, that's one example. There's a bunch of others where she requests documents and related to um, rapid testing, re reagents, swabs, laboratory equipment, um, all within 30 days. Um, so I think the number one criticism coming out of the government was the timeline and the amount of paper, um, but not so much the where the paper is coming from. Yeah, which, which is, is odd because I mean being the prime minister's office yeah. and var various ministers' offices. Yeah. I don't really know I, what the deal is with that. I, I found that a bit curious because it sounds like... I mean, I guess you can absolutely take exception to the timing, and certainly the access information system has the luxury of just telling you to fuck yourself for you know months at a time, if not years, uh, with, with nary a, a method of really doing anything about it. So I can see why they would be a little more concerned about not being able to comply um, with something where there actually are binding consequences for not uh, making it in on time. Uh, but yeah, I, I found that a bit strange as the place to direct their ire, but I suppose it makes sense for pretty much those reasons. So I, I don't want to be accused of 3D chess here. Um, because I, I, I very much have the concern uh, Do you know if in you, my own analysis. If you play chess in the real world, you're in fact playing 3D chess. <laughs> Thank you for that. Or four-dimensional four chess, if you will, uh, if, if you've got that clock going. Um, so I had thought that the odds were greater than not that the government would have declared this conference motion. Um, they have announced they're not going to. Um, which begs the question of what is going to happen when it comes time to when the, when that 30 day timeline comes up yeah does the government hand a neat folder over with all the documents that were lovingly um bound by the civil servants and their ministers offices um or does the government then say no like not enough time, we need more time, a ask for sort of an extension to the deadline, or does it just flat out refuse on various things? And if it flat out refuses, which I suspect it will... Yeah, and we've been down this um, road before, in fact. Particularly around minister's office documents. Um, where does it go, right? The, the Parliament of Canada does not have a division or a police... For well, not to slander the... Uh, parliamentary security folks but the police force to enforce their will that's not what those those guys and gals are there for um the government can say no and it is up to parliament to try and enforce their will Par parliament you know unquestioningly has the right um of parliament or and parliamentary supremacy to ask for basically any papers in canada um but if the executive doesn't comply the executive the executive doesn't comply and the real recourse for them is to find, for Parliament, is to find the government in contempt of Parliament, um, which should sound uh, all very familiar, um, because this is more or less what played out with the contempt of Parliament motion um, under the Harper government, but I believe that was around the uh, F-35 costings. I believe that's the, correct, yes. The, the candidness and the releasing of documents, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so then if the government is found in contempt, 
is that a confidence motion? I mean, I think the odds are fairly high that the government would then consider a contempt of parliament um, to be a confidence motion, but do they want their election triggered by a motion of contempt? I mean... You know, well, Harper's, I mean, someone, someone has already Harper's been down this road and got a majority government for their troubles, so... Uh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I mean, if you take that as your precedent, then that worked well for them. Um, but I mean, this is all several steps ahead, and we, we just don't know how the government is going to comply when this order, uh, when this motion is likely passed now on Monday. Um, the government hasn't put up a tremendous fight. Uh, to my knowledge, it hasn't tried to peel off um, the block or the NDP on its side by making you know, very heartfelt arguments as to why this was a horrible idea and why it couldn't comply with this. Mm -hmm. um, there's a certain amount of public discourse going on right now with health experts saying, uh, I think Naylor is the one on National News Watch right now talking about, you know, perhaps this isn't the time to request all these documents from the public health agency and others um, as, as they're busy with other things. How much work does this put on, you know, their plates? Probably some, it's hard to tell how much. Um, and who's going to be doing the, the document gathering. Um, but it, it's certainly more than no work. Um, and then, you know, we can have the discussion of the, I, I mean, I guess we'll see, we can have this discussion later, but in terms of the merits of the motion and what is elicited via the motion and how effective the committee is at helping the government do its job better um, on sort of a, a going forward basis as opposed to just providing a, a retrospective analysis yeah but for the opposition i think the retrospective analysis is vitally important especially when um especially when an election is offing because if an election is called in any time in the next year really it's going to be an election that's fought on the basis of the government's record in both managing the health crisis and managing the economic calamity of this period yeah and so to say that we, we should wait for three years from now when this is all done in order to do any sort of retrospective analysis doesn't work. Well, as, as Minister Haidu put it, uh, you don't want to do your after action report in the middle of the battle. Yeah, but the imperatives are if you're going to change your general, <laughs> if you know there's the option to change generals mid battle. Yes. You, you probably want to know how good of a job. Well, and famously. Doing. Famously, Abraham Lincoln replaced George McClellan uh, as uh, in the Army of the Potomac, um, and uh, they did a lot better after he did that. And then George McClellan ran against him uh, in 1864 as uh, in the presidential election. So there you go, and he lost, obviously. So you know, sometimes you do want to change your general. <laughs> There's at least one example we can think of of changing the general mid-battle. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's nice as the government. It's it's a very nice line by the government, and it's one that I think will be persuasive to academics and to public health experts who are not perhaps apprised of the, uh, you know, the political realities faced by the opposition. The fact of the matter is, the opposition of all stripes do not have the luxury of waiting three to four years for the Royal Commission on COVID to come out. Um, to then begin its analysis. Well, and also I do think that people, like, frankly, like, I, I don't think that the government's handling of the pandemic has been so unimpeachable that I don't want to know the details of it, you know? I like, I'm not, I'm not willing to take the government at its word, and I think I'm, I'm not really alone in that. So what, one of the challenges of parliament, or in parliament, 
is when a very popular bill comes up, um, there is often all party support to basically pass that bill through all stages immediately. And every time it misses committee study, there are stakeholders who miss the opportunity to come forward and say, here are the, here are the problems, here are the challenges with that bill as written, here's how we make it better. Um, you know, there have been a few examples of this over the years. Um, the Just Acts, the Just Act, uh, Rona, is, Rona Ambrose's uh, private member's bill that's now government legislation or has been morphed into government legislation was an example of this. Where it came to Senate committee, that's when a whole bunch of witnesses came forward and said, here's our challenges with the bill. And I'm not making an assessment based on those uh, witnesses' testimony. I'm just saying when you pass the scrutiny or when you bypass scrutiny, um, you're closing yourself the opportunity to ameliorate things. And early on in the pandemic handling, there's the, you know, various provincial governments took different tracks, but broadly the Conservatives, the NDP, the Bloc, everyone got on side and sort of presented a, a Team Canada face to pandemic handling. Everyone gave the government wide latitude to pass a tremendous amount of spending measures, largely unscrutinized. Um, there were suggestions that they take this one step forward and convene a uh, all-party pandemic cabinet, which is sort of what happened in New Brunswick. Um, but, you know, it was rightly criticized by various people in terms of what they did in New Brunswick, because when everyone is in on the decision-making, there is no one to provide the function that Parliament is supposed to provide, which is accountability. And so I think Parliament largely forgot about its accountability um, in favor of the necessity to get things out the door early on. And now that function is coming back and it's coming back double time um, because there wasn't a, any real accountability early on. And so now Parliament's wanting to have a, you know, a, a retrospective view of, oh, what are these programs we passed? How well did money go out the door, et cetera? And it's a lot for the government to, you know, to handle and tackle from a, from a politics procedural from every different angle. Um, it is a challenge, especially while the pandemic is ongoing, but it would be a challenge at the best of times nonetheless. Yeah. I, I don't have a lot to add to that. I think that was... that was a hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah, brother. Uh, <laughs> I think that'll probably do it for us today. Uh, unless you got anything else you, you want to throw in at the end here? No, I think... Uh, I mean, the vote's on Monday. Um, so if our fine listeners are listening to this uh, Monday morning, uh, this will make sense. But if uh, Monday afternoon rolls around, the vote will likely pass, and then we'll be on a 30-day timer to see how the government complies with the motion um, and, you know, what happens and whether or not ultimately, if, if I'm, you know... If I'm reading the stars correctly, that this could be a potential issue in uh, 31 odd days, and uh, I suppose that'll be, uh, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to report again at that point, I suppose, <laughs> depending on how that goes. Yeah, it was very inconvenient with our normal three week recording cycle. Indeed, it'll probably be six weeks until we record again at that rate. Exactly, it takes us to Christmas. So I guess that'll do it for this episode of the Boys in Your Pants, and. Uh... Hopefully you're all aboard for, for the next hundred or whenever they may come. So I will say that uh, whatever we said last episode in terms of rating and reviewing uh, worked particularly well, especially on Apple's iTunes or uh, iTunes or podcast or whatever. <laughs> whatever whatever, whatever combination of words uh, that is. 
Um, got a bunch of different reviews. Thank you. Um, we're not at 100, though. Uh, and it would be great to break 100 reviews for 100 episodes. Indeed. That's only two away. So if you get there and there's more than 100, you know, you've already looked it up. You might as well, you might as well just throw your review down anyways. Indeed. By the way, Tian, I made some hot sauce with those habaneros you gave me. They, the habaneros or the banana peppers? The habaneros. And how is it? Uh, it's very tasty. If you want a small jar of it, uh, feel free to come by in the next couple of days and grab it. Is it a fermented one? Or it is a, not a fermented one. I wouldn't have been able to make uh, a fermented one, one in the 48 hours since I, I've got them. Well, I thought you might have sampled it and then be waiting for it to... Uh... No, no, I've got a made jar, so there you go. Uh-huh. I've actually got a bunch of the habaneros on my counter waiting to find something to do with them. Well, I, I, mean, I can send you the you recipe for the sauce because it's relatively two, good. Two dozen habaneros. I, I was pretty pleasantly surprised. I may I may have to take you up on that. Very good. Well, with that that note of, of <laughs> critical interest to our listeners, we will uh, conclude this episode. Thank you once again for listening. Bye-bye!